Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 217 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's big Bible question, what is the abomination of desolation? Part one. So hello, friends. Happy Friday to you. Well, this episode turned into a long one, so I actually had to cut it into two episodes. So let's skip all the formalities and begin with a great observation from listener Jesse the Hiker Worrell on a recent podcast. And Jesse writes, in Matthew 17, 20 through 21, in the Holman Christian Standard Bible, New American Standard Bible, and others, besides littleness of faith in verse 20, verse 21 states in brackets, but this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. In the CSB and the ESV and other translations, you will notice in both of these versions, they go from Matthew chapter 17, verse 20 to Matthew 17, verse 22, skipping or discarding verse 21. Interesting. As well, in Mark 9.29, the Holman Christian Standard Bible also lists fasting. In other words, Jesus says this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. But others, while like the NASB, ESV, and the Christian Standard Bible, do not. They only say this kind can come out by nothing but prayer. So... That's an interesting observation. And let's tackle the Matthew passage first. Why in the world is Matthew 17, 21 missing from most modern translations of the Bible, but present in others, including the King James Version? Now, Jesse, being an astute Bible scholar, probably already knows what is going on here, but some might not, so let's talk about it a little bit. Up until the invention of the printing press, all books of the Bible were hand-copied, as, of course, were all books up until the invention of the printing press. Now, this hand-copying, and when I say hand-copying, I mean they were copied by, you know, quill in paper or quill in parchment or something like that. Uh, This hand-copying means that there are variations among these handwritten manuscripts because some copiers of the scriptures were more careful than others. Now, most of our earliest and best extant, extant being a word that means it still exists, we still have it. So most of our earliest and best extant manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew do not contain verse 21, which says this kind can only come out by prayer, by prayer and fasting. But many of the later manuscripts do contain that passage. So the earliest and oldest ones don't have it. The later ones and the newer ones do have it. So what that probably means is that at some point, hundreds of years after Matthew was written, an overzealous copyist added verse 21 to the manuscript of Matthew. This would have been before verses and chapters were put into the text. That was not in the original text. It happened hundreds of years, in fact, over a thousand years afterwards. And so that addition caught on in future copies. Now, why would a copyist do such a thing? Why would they add a passage into the Bible? Well, very likely this was done to bring the Matthew 17 passage into harmony with Mark 9.29, which we will discuss next. Now, here is Dr. Bruce Metzger, who is probably the foremost uh, textual expert 
uh, on these kind of variations that has lived in my lifetime. And Dr. Metzger says this, There is no satisfactory reason why this verse, verse 21, should have been emitted in such a wide variety of manuscripts if it were originally present in the original version of Matthew. Copyists frequently inserted material from one gospel into another, and here it appears that most manuscripts have added, quote, but this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting from the parallel in Mark 9.29. So that's probably happened. what happened there. So what about Mark 29? Why do some versions have prayer and fasting and some versions only mention prayer as the key to casting stubborn demons out? Now, this is a slightly more complex issue, but it's still very related to the issue we just discussed. The Handwritten manuscript witness of the Greek New Testament's uh, it, version of Mark is a bit divided on whether or not, quote, and fasting was in the original autograph of Mark's gospel. In other words, the original document Mark himself wrote. And that means that some ancient Greek manuscripts have, quote, prayer and fasting, and some, I think more, if I'm remembering correctly, have just prayer. In other words, Jesus says, This kind can only come out by prayer. Now, generally speaking, when experts in this field, which is a field called textual criticism, when experts in the field are confronted by a situation like this in the handwritten manuscripts of the Bible, they generally believe that the shorter and simpler reading is likely to be the original reading, and the more complex or longer reading is likely to be the result of a much later copyist adding something to the text. That's not always the case, but it appears to be the case in this one. And Metzger has kind of an interesting explanation for what he thinks happened here. And he says this, In light of the increasing emphasis in the early church on the necessity of fasting, it is understandable that after a copyist added, and by fasting, as a comment on the text, These words found their way into most witnesses. Among the witnesses that resisted such an addition are important representatives of the Alexandrian and the Western text types. In other words, what Dr. Metzger is saying is an early copyist might have added a handwritten note in the margins of the text that said something like, and fasting. And that note, handwritten into the margins, eventually, accidentally, found itself copied into the text itself, you know, like I said, as an accident or an oversight. Now, there are several of these kinds of variations found in the thousands of handwritten Greek Bible manuscripts that have survived from antiquity, but fortunately, since we have so many of these Greek manuscripts from all over the place, textual scholars do a great job of reconstructing the original text so that we can be very confident that what we have in our Bibles today is what was written by the apostles, prophets, and authors of Scripture. Now, you might be saying, why does the King James Version have this verse in it and modern versions don't? And the crazy thing is, it's almost counterintuitive until you realize what's going on. The translators of the King James Version of the Bible in the 1600s had a pretty good set of Greek manuscripts to translate from. But over the almost over the 400 years since then, scholars have found more and more and more Greek manuscripts, including more older 
Greek manuscripts. So the crazy thing is now, even though the King James Version of 1916-20 and even the original King James Version of 1611, the crazy thing is modern scholarship has more and older Greek translations and manuscripts of the Bible to use in determining what the original reading of the text is than the translators of the King James Version had. So I think we can actually be more assured of what like the the CSB, the NASB, the, the ESV says. And in this particular case, what we've learned over the last 400 years of studying those older and ancient Greek manuscripts is that probably a copyist added that verse into uh, the the manuscript of Matthew 17 to bring it in line with Mark 9. Now, he probably thought he was doing a good thing. He was, in a sense, doing a good thing because he was taking the words of Jesus and harmonizing those two passages, but that's not a necessary thing to do because we have the witness of Matthew and we have the witness of Mark. And as we've discussed before, eyewitness testimony sometimes will... Uh, one eyewitness will leave out something that another eyewitness emphasizes, and that's not an integrity problem. That's not a historical problem. That's how eyewitness testimony works. That's one of the reasons why we know that the testimony of the Bible is real and genuine, because it has every hallmark of genuine eyewitness testimony. All right, on to our question. Today's Bible readings include Judges 14, Acts 18, Jeremiah 26, and Mark 13, which is our focus passage. Now, our question is one that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that we'd cover eventually, and today is the day. What is the mysterious abomination that causes desolation? So let's read Mark 13, and then we'll discuss it in a little more depth. Mark chapter 13, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible As Jesus was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what impressive buildings! Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus told them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it is not yet the end. For a nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. But you, be on your guard. They will hand you over to local courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them, and it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say, but say whatever is given to you at that time. For it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those in Judah must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down or go in to get anything out of his house, and a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days." 
Pray that it won't happen in winter, for those will be days of tribulation, the kind that hasn't been from the beginning of creation until now, and never will be again. If the Lord had not cut those days short, no one would be saved. But he cut those days short for the sake of the elect whom he chose. Then if anyone tells you, see, here's the Messiah, or see there, do not believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will arise and will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And you must watch. I have told you everything in advance. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will be falling from the sky and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. He will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now concerning that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Watch, be alert, for you don't know when the time is coming. It is like a man on a journey who left his house, gave authority to his servants, gave each one his work, and commanded the doorkeeper, be alert. Therefore be alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or at the crowing of the rooster or early in the morning. Otherwise, when he comes suddenly, he might find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. So what is the most important thing in that passage? And I'm going to tell you, it's the last verse. It's the thing Jesus emphasizes over and over and over and over and over again when he talks about his second coming in the last days. Not the topic we're talking about today, although I think it's okay to talk about. It's interesting. But uh, not when he's going to come back, not the date or anything like that. What he emphasizes is be awake, be ready, be watching, be alert, be doing the things we're supposed to be doing when the master comes back. So in other passages, it's like basically he'll knock at the door and we're standing at the door doing what we're supposed to be doing, not asleep, not carousing, not doing dumb things. And as soon as we hear that first knock, we swing open the door and Jesus comes in. That's the picture of readiness that he gives us in scripture. That's the important thing. So the abomination of desolation, it's interesting. We're going to discuss it for two days, but just please allow me to impress upon your soul and my soul that the most important thing about the last days is that we be watching and ready and sober and alert for the return of our master. So back to the abomination of desolation. It's verse 14 in this passage that tells us about it. And Jesus says this in sort of mysterious tone, or at least it sounds mysterious to me. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those in Judea f- must flee to the mountains. Now, during the Olivet Discourse, which is uh, not the Sermon on the Mount, but same place, it's a Sermon on the Mount of Olives that is recorded in Luke 21, Matthew 24, and Mark 13, towards the end of Jesus' ministry. He teaches a lot 
about the end times and his second coming. In Matthew 24 and Mark 13, today's passage, he alludes to an abomination that causes desolation, but doesn't really explain it in much detail. He also appears to allude to it in Luke, but with a slightly different uh, phraseology there. So here's the relevant passages. Matthew 24, 15, and 16 says, Jesus says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Now Luke 21, 20 and 21 says, Jesus says, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that its desolation has come near. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those inside the city must leave it, and those who are in the country must not enter it. Now, what's going on here? Do we have another uh, uh, conflict in the text? No, of course we don't. Remember, Jesus taught the Olivet Discourse verbally. And were the disciples taking notes? Probably so. Did they uh, have a, a Sony voice recorder to make sure they got every little thing? No, they didn't. What we have is eyewitness testimony. And so is the is Jesus talking about the sign that you should flee Judea, uh, the fact that Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, or the fact that the abomination of desolation is set up? And the answer is both. He's I think Luke captures a part of what he's saying, and Matthew and Mark capture another part of what he's saying. And I think we are right historically to put those two things together. So from Matthew, we learn that Daniel was the only one, uh, I'm sorry, Daniel was the one who originally spoke about this abomination that causes desolation. And we also learn that it will be, quote, standing in the holy place. From Luke, we learn that this abomination will also be accompanied by the armies of an enemy, which will surround Jerusalem. We also learn that in Daniel. To get more clarity, let's go back to the three chapters in the book of Daniel that Jesus is alluding to here. We're going to read a long passage from Daniel 9, verses 21 through 27. And Daniel says this, While I was praying, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the first vision, reached me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me this explanation. Daniel, I've come now to give you understanding. At the beginning of your petitions, an answer went out, and I have come to give it, for you are treasured by God. So consider the message message, and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, the ruler, will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. After those sixty-two weeks, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the coming ruler will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood, and until the end there will be war. Desolations are decreed. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrificing and offering. And the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. So Daniel originally is told about the abomination of desolation from the angel Gabriel. 
The city and sanctuary of Jerusalem will be destroyed by a ruler. That ruler will make a covenant with somebody, but in the middle of that covenant, maybe it's a peace treaty, we don't know, some sort of deal, he will stop the sacrificing and offering in the temple, and then, at some point, the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple. Now, continuing on to Daniel 11, we learn a couple more things. This is Daniel 11, 28-33. The king of the north uh, will return to his land with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action, then return to his own land. At the appointed time, he will come against again to the south, but this time will not be like the first. Ships of Kittim will come against him, and being intimidated, he will withdraw. Then he will rage against the Holy Covenant and take action. On his return, he will favor those who abandon the Holy Covenant. His forces will rise up and desecrate the temple fortress. They will abolish the regular sacrifice and set up the abomination of desolation. With flattery, flattery, he will corrupt those who act wickedly towards the covenant But the people who know their God will be strong and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to many, yet they will fall by the sword and flame, and they will be captured and plundered for a time. We learn here that it is the forces of the, quote, king of the north who will be the ones to set up the abomination of desolation, and that it could be done at roughly the same time, Uh, perhaps a little afterwards, that the regular sacrifice is abolished. Now, one more passage, Daniel 12, 11 says, From the time the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Now, this passage indicates, maybe that's what it's saying, is that there will be 1,290 days, or I think that's 43 months, between the abolishing of the sacrifice, and the setting up of the abomination of desolation. So the timing is a little bit unclear there. Now tomorrow's episode, we don't want to make this one too long. Tomorrow's episode, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into this mystery. But for now, let's review what we've learned from the Word of God so far. All right, to summarize, the king of the north will set up the abomination of the desolation in the temple at some point after the sacrifices are abolished. When this happens, Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies and will be under siege of some sort. This will be such a serious situation that Jesus suggests that many should flee the entire city of Jerusalem and stay away when they see this happen. Going beyond this is going to require a little bit of interpretation and a little bit of history since it's conceivable, in fact, it appears to be this way, that the prophecy of Daniel has already been partly fulfilled. Well, stay tuned for tomorrow's episode. Same bat time, same bat channel. For now, Judges chapter 14, verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah and saw a young Philistine woman there. He went back and told his father and mother, I have seen a young Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. But his father and mother said to him, Can't you find a young woman among your relatives or among any of our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines for a wife? But Samson told his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. Now his father and mother did not know this was from the Lord who wanted the Philistines to provide an opportunity for a confrontation. 
At that time, the Philistines were ruling Israel. Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the vineyard of Timnah. Suddenly a young lion came roaring at him. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on him, and he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he did not tell his father or mother about what he had done. Then he went and spoke to the woman, because she seemed right to Samson. After some time, when he returned to marry her, he left the road to see the lion's carcass, and there was a swarm of bees with honey in the carcass. He scooped some honey into his hands and ate it as he went along. When he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them, and they ate it, but he did not tell them that he had scooped the honey from the lion's carcass. His father went to visit the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, as young men were accustomed to do. When the Philistines saw him, they brought thirty men to accompany him. Let me tell you a riddle, Samson said to them. If you can explain it to me during the seven days of the feast and figure it out, I will give you thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. But if you can't explain it to me, you must give me thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. Tell us your riddle, they replied. Let's hear it. So he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. After three days they were unable to explain the riddle. On the fourth day they said to Samson's wife, Persuade your husband to explain the riddle to us, or we will burn you and your father's family to death. Did you invite us here to rob us? So Samson's wife came to him weeping and said, You hate me and don't love me. You told my people the riddle, but haven't explained it to me. Look, he said, I haven't even explained it to my father or mother, so why should I explain it to you? She wept the whole seven days of the feast, and at last, on the seventh day, he explained it to her because she had nagged him so much. Then she explained it to her people. On the seventh day, before sunset, the men of the city said to him, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? So he said to them, If you hadn't plowed with my young cow, you wouldn't know my riddle now. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on him, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed thirty of their men. He stripped them and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. In a rage, Samson returned to his father's house, and his wife was given to one of the men who had accompanied him. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 27, verse 1. At the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what the Lord said to me, Make chains and yoke bars for yourself and put them on your neck. Send word to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of the Ammonites, the king of Tyre, and the king of Sidon through messengers who are coming to King Zedekiah of Judah and Jerusalem. Command them to go to their master, saying, This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. Tell this to your masters. Be my, by my great strength and outstretched arm, I have made the earth and the people and animals on the face of the earth. I give it to anyone I please. So now I have placed all these lands under the authority of my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I have even given him the wild animals to serve him. All nations will serve him, his son and his grandson, until the time for his own land comes, and then many nations and great kings will enslave him. As for the nation or kingdom that does not serve King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, it does not place its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that nation I will punish by sword, famine, and plague. This is the Lord's declaration, 
until through him I have destroyed it. So you should not listen to your prophets, diviners, dreamers, fortune tellers, or sorcerers who say to you, don't serve the king of Babylon. They are prophesying a lie to you so that you will be removed from your land. I will banish you and you will perish. But as for the nation that will put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will leave it in its own land and that nation will cultivate it and reside in it. This is the Lord's declaration. I spoke to King Zedekiah of Judah in the same way. Put your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon, serve him and his people, and live. Why should you and your people die by the sword, famine, and plague, as the Lord has threatened against any nation that does not serve the king of Babylon? Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are telling you, Don't serve the king of Babylon, for they are prophesying a lie to you. I have not sent them. This is the Lord's declaration, and they are prophesying falsely in my name. Therefore, I will banish you and you will perish, you and the prophets who are prophesying to you. Then I spoke to the priests and all these people, saying, This is what the Lord says. Do not listen to the words of your prophets. They are prophesying to you, claiming, Look, very soon now the articles of the Lord's temple will be brought back from Babylon. They are prophesying a lie to you. Do not listen to them. Serve the king of Babylon and live. Why should this city become a ruin? If they are indeed prophets and if the word of the Lord is with them, let them intercede with the Lord of armies not to let the articles that remain in the Lord's temple in the palace of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem go to Babylon. For this is what the Lord of armies says about the pillars, the basin, the water carts, and the rest of the articles that still remain in this city. Those King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon did not take when he deported Jeconiah, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah from Jerusalem to Babylon, along with all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem. Yes, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says about the articles that remain in the temple of the Lord in the palace of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem. They will be taken to Babylon and will remain there until I attend to them again. This is the Lord's declaration. Then I will bring them up and restore them to this place. Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, where he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul came to them, and since they were of the same occupation, tent makers by trade, he stayed with them and worked. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to preaching the word and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his clothes and told them, Your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord along with his whole household. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. The Lord said to Paul in the night vision, Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent. For I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. He stared there a year and a half, teaching the word of God among them. While Gallio was a proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack against Paul and brought him to the tribunal. This man, they said, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. 
As Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or of serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you Jews, but if these are questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of such things. So he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But none of these things mattered to Gallio. After staying for some time, Paul said farewell to the brothers and sisters and sailed away to Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. He shaved his head at Centria because of a vow he had taken. When they reached Ephesus, he left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and debated with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he declined, but he said farewell and added, I'll come back to you again if God wills. Then he set sail from Ephesus. On landing at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church, then he went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he set out, traveling through one place after another in the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandrian, an eloquent man who was competent in the use of scriptures, arrived in Ephesus. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus, although he only knew John's baptism. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue after Priscilla and Aquila heard him. They took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. When he wanted to cross over to Achaia, the brothers and sisters wrote to the disciples to welcome him. After he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, he most certainly is. Let us rejoice that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior and the Lord and the Son of God. Good day to you, friends, and Godspeed.